Brother Mack and Miss Lynn Hammond with us today, uh, the pastors and founders, amen. Pastors and founders of the Great Living Word Church up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. They've been, uh, that church has been going strong for over 40 years, is that right? 42 years and uh, just a powerhouse, hallelujah, reaching far out beyond their, their border. And uh, if you would, reach your hands out toward Brother Mac today and let's receive him and believe with him. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for the gifts of Brother Mac and Miss Lynn. And we say, Lord, let your anointing come strong on them and give utterance strong to him and speak to us and minister to us. We receive him. We receive you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Thank you, Brother Mac. I've got to turn this thing on. Yeah, here. just one little switch on top. How's that? Does that work? Yeah, okay. they got you. They got you. All yes, right. Sir. Yes, Y'all be, please be seated. Please yeah. be seated. And, of course, um, I am so honored. You know, Lynn and I have known Keith and Phyllis for a long, long time. They've become good friends, and I am truly honored and blessed uh, to be here with you today. Thank you for having us. Um, if you, I'm sure you know, but just in case you didn't, you have perhaps the most quality ministry available to you anywhere. And um, so for me to be able to come, it's truly an honor. And I do want to also, I don't know if she'll stand, she's bashful, but uh, I'd like you to see my beautiful wife, Lynn. Would you stand? Amen. I'm sure there are a few husbands that would probably uh, disagree with this, but I have the most beautiful, wonderful wife a man could have. Amen. And I will say this. Next week, we will be celebrating our 57th wedding anniversary. So It's uh, hard for me to even imagine somebody sticking with me for 57 years, so thank you so much. Well, you know, I've had a couple people tell me they want to hear a joke, and of course, uh, you know, I, I consider this a real uh, preparatory exercise of your faith, so you'll enjoy the message this morning. You need to believe the joke is going to be funny. You need to put a little corresponding action to it and laugh a little bit, and you will enjoy it, amen, and it'll not only break the ice, but it will... Um, perhaps set the stage for something more effective for your faith to be applied to. But I'm sure you've probably heard this, but if you didn't, uh, there is a scientific study that has proven a woman who gains weight will live longer than the men who mention it. I get persecuted for my jokes by my wife. Amen. But, um, I am so excited about uh, being able to share what's in my heart with you today. It's a, uh, uh, like I said, a privilege to be here, but particularly regarding what the Lord has been stirring in me for quite some time now. I think as a pastor, uh, if you are a pastor or uh, Keith, certainly would know uh, that there are people, and this is something that's, uh, verbalized to me with some degree of regularity. People that have believed the Word, loved God, learned His promises, and yet, uh, you know, they haven't yet come to pass, to fruition. And I get oftentimes asked, why would that be? I believe the Word. There's no doubt that I believe the Word. But days, months, and years have passed, and I haven't seen the manifestation of the promises that I want to lay hold of. And, of course, there are many contributors uh, to that possibility. And my usual answer over the years has been, well, you you know, uh, faith always works. You just need to hear more word until you come to a place of expectation. And that is your indicator that the manifestation is at hand or close to uh, being there for you. When you believe and you know and you know that you know, you have this promise, then you're close to the manifestation. But what I want to talk to you about today, I think, is the primary reason most people 
failed to receive that promise in all of its fullness. And it's something that um, so basic to our Christian pursuit that uh, a lot of times it just passes over our heads. And that is this. When you live by the royal law of love, you will see things coming to pass in your life just popping. Just popping. Coming to pass that wouldn't have otherwise come to pass. And of course, um, you know, hand in hand with this truth is your ability to live by the royal law. And I'm not going to preach to you about the definition of love If you've come to this church more than a week, you probably know what it is. You know, uh, the Greek word agape means to give. And, of course, as your life becomes progressively more based on your concern for other people's needs than your own, when self-gratification takes a second seat behind what you can do with your resource of life, time, talent, money, for other people, you're living by the royal law. But here's the thing that I think a lot of us miss. You can only live by love to the extent that you know how much God loves you. You cannot give something away that you haven't fully received. And to the extent that we become grounded in how much God loves us, we'll begin to see things change in our life. Well, I mean, just a brief consideration of that. Uh, the meaning of love gives you the understanding that I think you should have. When you know how much God loves you, which is unconditional, unrestrained giving, not only to meet your need, but to go above and beyond what you can even ask or think. This is the heart of God. And when you truly believe that, are you going to sweat paying your bills? Are you going to be uptight? about getting your healing. Any of the promises of God take on a different shape and a different shade in your life when you realize how much the Creator of the universe loves you. And that's been a a little difficult for me because, you know, Lynn used to tease me earlier on saying that uh, God loved her more than He loved me. But I actually believe that. You know, (laughs) I didn't have the revelation of how much God loved me. And, you know, this is something you have to uh, kind of be mindful of on an ongoing daily basis. That you're in relationship with the creator of this universe and he loves you enough to have sent Jesus for you. If you were the only one that needed Jesus, Jesus, he would have sent him to you. And when you have that revelation, it begins to change and reshape everything in your life. Faith is no longer difficult. You don't have to. I mean, you always need to hear the word. Please don't minimize the significance of that. You need to, you know, shape your relationships and the pursuits of your life on the basis of what God says uh, is his will, his promise for you. But when you know how much He loves you, it just becomes a, a, a non-issue. It becomes something that happens very easily. And so I want to talk to you today about how much God loves you by beginning in 1 John chapter 4. By the way, your pastor uh, made a gracious mistake by telling me to preach as long as I wanted, so no telling when you're going to get out of here. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, I'm sure is familiar to all of you. We have known and believed the love that God hath to us. Two different things. You can know what the Bible says about God loving you. Coming to a point of belief regarding that truth is another thing altogether. I know myself too well. I know my shortcomings better than anybody other than the Lord. I know the challenges that, you know, maybe I have with my thought life in certain areas. I know the times that my fuse has been too short and I've 
said or done things I shouldn't. I know myself really well. And because I do, uh, I wonder how in the world, and this is not a conscious wonder, it's just a subconscious approach to life. How could God really, really love me enough to do these things? And of course that's there because you don't fully believe. You know, but you need to believe the love that God hath to us. God is love. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in Him. You know, I, I have spent hours pursuing the presence of God and encounter with God. And all you have to do is know and believe how much God loves you. Amen. And you'll find God very quickly because He dwells, lives, abides in you. Amen. The personification of love lives in you. And so to the degree that uh, you realize how much God loves you, you will experience His presence. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to search for it. You don't have to labor to find it. It's there. And when you know and believe the love that God has for you, that's exactly what happens. Next verse says that. Herein is our love made perfect. Our love, our ability to love other people is made perfect only when we know and believe how much God loves us. If you find it difficult to extend unconditional love to somebody, they're just nasty. They, you know, they perhaps stepped on your toes on many occasions and, uh, you know, it's hard sometimes to enter into unconditional giving, but you can be perfected in love. The word perfect means mature. You can be matured in love, and then you'll know and believe the love that God has for you. No, I should say that comes first, and then that brings perfection. How will you know that you're there? The next verse says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casteth out fear. If you haven't been perfected in love, fear will be evident in many different aspects of your life. Fear, you know, is a word that sometimes we don't like to use. But, you know, the words for fear, worry, cares, anxiety, is fear. The root of that is fear. And if you have been perfected in love, you will not fear anything. And I've had people say, I'm sure, uh, you know, many here might be thinking, hey man, there's some things that it's going to generate fear. It's just a human condition that we're dealing with. No, it's a human condition only if you haven't known and believed the love that God has for you. And when you're perfected in that, not only will you know the presence of God on an ongoing basis, punch the person next to you and say, wake up, bozo. (laughs) I do that to my own church, actually. In my church, I've got a water gun by the uh, podium. And if they're within range and I see this kind of thing going on, give them a little squirt. That, that... Here's the problem. Because these are eternal truths that you need to hear. And don't you dare think, I've heard about the love of God. I don't need to hear anymore. There is never an end to the revelation of truth that is in this Word. At any rate, I don't mean to get um, detoured here. Lynn always tells me, you're not loving people very well when you fuss at them for sleeping. She always says, they may have worked all night. They're doing good just to get to church. Be compassionate. That's why God loves her more than he does me. But at any rate, it is a fact. This is a good measuring parameter for you. How big a challenge is fear in your life? And, you know, I can think of fearful circumstances right now. But if I'm grounded in the awareness and revelation of how much God loves me, that fear goes right out the window. Because the creator of the universe loves you 
Amen. So how in the world can you be afraid of anything? So let me just ask uh, if you have any thoughts about how this revelation comes. I used to, um, uh, okay, I know I need to be uh, more grounded in how much God loves me. I see the significance of it in contributing to my quality of life. How does this revelation come? Because I've read the Word. I know what the Word says. But, you know, I still feel the touch of fear in certain arenas or areas. How does the revelation come? I think I believe. I read the Word. I know what He says. But I still struggle with fear. I need a revelation. Not just knowledge. I need a revelation of how much He loves me. Well, there are a couple of immediate considerations that most of you probably have already thought of. You need to be hungry enough for God to spend time with Him, to seek His presence in your life, to commune with Him, to pray, and then access the revelation ministry of the Holy Spirit. And certainly that is a prime contributor. But I think there's one even perhaps more basic than that uh, that opens the door to revelation knowledge for you. And that's seen in uh, John chapter 15. If you wanted to look there for a moment. John chapter 15, verse 10. Now don't get alienated by what I'm suggesting until you hear me out. If you keep my commandments... You shall abide in my love. Abide, same terminology used in 1 John 3 or 4 that we just looked at. Uh, You will live in that love. That means the presence of God. You'll abide in His love. And so it's keeping the Word of God. And I don't know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not anti-grace by any measure, but there are uh, paradigms of the grace message that I think are unhealthy. It seems to impart that it's okay if you don't do the Word. God loves you anyway. Uh, you know, He's 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 there for you anyway. All of these things are true. I mean, it doesn't matter what we do. You know, He's always going to love you. His desire will always be that you experience life and blessing, not death and cursing. But it's still your choice. It's not His choice. You as a free moral agent have to choose the things that will produce produce life and blessing as opposed to death and cursing. And uh, But so, you know, when we have the, the word here that says, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Uh, I've, had, I've had comments made to me that that's legalism. You know, you're having to, you're having to do something. You're having to do all of the jots and the tittles of the law in order to persuade God uh, to make his love real to you. So you can abide in His love. And that sounds like legalism. It is not. Legalism is when your motive in doing something is to get something from God. That begins to step into the matter of legalism. So really, what what happens to produce death and cursing in a believer's life? If we know and believe that God loved us, why would death and cursing show up? Is it God bringing judgment to bear in your life because you didn't do the Word? Get over that. Your sin was judged once and for all at the cross of Christ. Everything you have ever done that falls in that category, past, present, or future, has already been forgiven. The price has been paid for your sin. And so we need to understand that legalism is not... No, I should probably add, we have to receive by acknowledging it when we miss the Lord. That's sin. 
That's why 1 John 1, 7 through 9 says, If we acknowledge, then the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. If a person's heart gets hardened, or they develop a callous in a certain area on their heart about doing something they know they need to change, confession becomes important in the sense of acknowledging that you've missed it and appropriating the power of the blood to bring cleansing and restoration of fellowship with Him. Uh, you know, there's so many potential rabbit trails here. It's hard for me to uh, stay on course sometimes. Um, but I want you to see the primary reason. It isn't God judging you. It, it, you know, there are a lot of religious things that uh, you know, that are said about why people experience death and cursing. It's not the hammer of God coming down in judgment. That's all taken care of at the cross. So why? If you believe, you have known, and are laboring to hear enough word so that you strengthen your faith and believe that God loves you as much as He does, why does death and cursing still come? Why is the promise delayed or not yet manifest well here's a simple reason in first john chapter four or three beg your pardon first john chapter three verse 21 says this beloved say i'm the beloved beloved if our heart condemn us not then have we confidence some translations say faith then we have confidence or faith towards God. Now, all of the things that have been made available to us by His grace, whether it's salvation, just down the list, healing, provision, whatever it may be, we have to receive by faith. And it says, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence or faith toward God, towards God. That implies very clearly... That if our heart does condemn us, we can't get in a place of faith to receive anything. And your heart will condemn you. If you're a believer and you're, and this is, this has to do with the word that you know. And you are transgressing the word of God, your heart will condemn you. Unless you're a new believer and just haven't read the word yet, that's where the mercy of God is extended. I used to wonder why you know, uh, you see so many miracles occur in a new believer's life. It's often this. God honors the fact that you haven't had time to read the Word, to grow and mature. And so His mercy is going to make up the difference for you. But when it has to do with something that you know, you've read, you believe, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Yeah, pastor, but you don't know what she did or didn't do or whatever. It could be turned around uh, and it can be applied to any relationship. As a person that has been born again, you're spiritually alive unto God. There are two realms of truth that now become relevant to your life. One is the spiritual arena. And the Bible tells you that you're a new creature in Christ. This is spiritually. You're still going to have the same pimples and blemishes you did before you got born again. But this is talking about spiritually. You're a new creature. You are the healed. You're not looking to be healed. You are the healed. You are the delivered. You are set free. The other realm of truth is temporal. Natural. That's the arena that God says, well, actually the word temporal means temporary or subject to change. Everything in this physical arena is subject to change. The chair you're sitting in is going to be dust and ashes someday. You know, this natural temporal arena changes. The eternal or unseen realm never changes. And when you're born again, you become spiritually alive to God. You know, you're the healed, delivered, set free, and prosperous. When you go home to be with the Lord, for sure, all of those things are going to be a reality for you because you've shed 
this natural body of flesh, which is governed by a carnal nature. You have shed it. Those truths will be there for you when you go on to be with the Lord. Our challenge is this life on this earth. This walk that is to be of faith. Not simply a matter of serving the demands of an unregenerate nature or a carnal nature in this body of flesh. Faith is intended to extract spiritual truth from that arena into this natural temporal world changing sickness into health, changing poverty into abundance, changing hate into love. This is what, I mean, you know, I've had people say, hey, why do I? And the Bible says I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But, you know, I know what I do that isn't exactly righteous. Now, the word says I am holy. Me? I, I know who I am. I'm not. Well, you know, these are things that uh, seem to be in conflict. But when you begin embracing by faith the truth of who you are in Christ, then the temporal reality changes and lines up with the unchangeable truth, the spiritual truth, the eternal truth of who you are in Christ. But, Faith won't be available to you if your heart is condemning you. So it's an important issue for you to consider. While the Word would say, you know, don't be just a hearer of the Word, but a doer. That's not because God's trying to hold your feet to some religious fire. God's not into into religion. He's telling you that for your own good. You can't believe something that you're not acting upon. And therefore, your faith will not be able to appropriate the grace of God. You know, we could stay here all morning and continue to reemphasize the importance of the things I'm talking to you about now. Yes, you need to be a doer of the Word. Don't ever minimize the significance of it. God's going to love you whether you do or not. You, you know, as long as Jesus is your Lord, you're going to heaven whether you do or not. But what's at stake is your quality of life on this earth, and that contributes directly to your ability to do the will of God on this earth. And cause the kingdom of God to proliferate, to grow, to expand. Every calling in here, and everybody has a calling of God. That doesn't mean to the full-time ministry. There are all kinds of callings. And it's intended that that calling ultimately be fulfilled in terms of the difference you make in changing human life on this earth for the better. That cannot happen unless the things that we're talking about now become a reality to you. And, of course, you know, I think most people in here don't need to be convinced of the importance of being a doer of the Word. Just don't get sucked in to the baloney that would suggest, no, it doesn't matter. God's grace is available to you. That's a perversion of the grace message. And, of course, grace is hugely important. I shouldn't even call it a message. They used to call, I used to hear people say, oh, you into the faith message? And I would say, no, I'm into the Word of God, and that's what faith is. It's the Word of God. I hate, I hate those name tags and those handles. And grace and faith go hand in hand. God's unmerited favor is available to you, but it takes faith to experience it. And faith can't come if you don't know how much God loves you. And you will never know how much God loves you until you start keeping His Word. He's not withholding anything from you. It's a matter of you going where He is. God is love. He's the personification of love. He's not withholding His love from you. He's already given it in the person of Jesus. 
If you don't feel a, if you don't feel that love, you simply haven't had a revelation of it because it will penetrate even your soul. And you will know it. All right. You know, uh, so many things more that could be said about this. I simply wanted you to grasp a few things that are consistent with the word. If we live by the royal law of love, we fulfill all of the word of God. Walking in his blessing then is never going to be an issue. It's not a legalistic thing. You cannot live by that law to any greater degree than you have a revelation of how much God loves you. You will never have a revelation of how much God loves you until you get serious about shaping your life according to the Word of God. And no excuses. You know, this isn't a deal where, uh, you know, we've got time to, to fool around with these things. I mean, you want to be elevated to a place where you have all of God to give to anybody who needs it. To live by the royal law, this is the way it begins. So, the enemy always has strategies to combat what he knows will produce in a believer the lifestyle that is a threat to him. And this is it. He understands that we're to live by the royal law. He understands that to the degree we realize how much God loves us, you know, our ability to give unconditionally to somebody will be limited. So what kind of strategies does he develop in order to combat your ability to have this revelation and to live by the royal law? Well, in praying about this some time ago, the Lord took me to uh, Hebrews Chapter 12, verse 14, which says, Follow peace with all men, and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Follow peace with all men, men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Well, This is really a way of saying, live by the royal law. You can experience peace with all men without living by the law of love. It's not attainable. So how do you define peace? There are really a couple of definitions. One applies to the spiritual person that you are. Peace can be defined as an inner tranquility and serenity of heart that's predicated on your sense of security in God. It's a mouthful, but listen to that. An inner sense of tranquility and serenity predicated predicated on... I just lost my train of thought. Predicated on, you know, uh, how much God loves you. And when you know how much God loves you, then, you know, there comes a peace that's internal that the the Bible says garrisons about your heart and your mind. It takes care not only of the heart, but the mental processes as well. When you have this kind of uh, revelation, and of course, um, there's a natural definition of peace, which is important too. It means the absence of conflict. Peace means the absence of conflict. Holiness, you know, it's not a reference to doing every jot and tittle of the law. It could be approached that way, but remember who God is. He's the personification of love. Holiness means separate, well, if you look up the word, it means sanctification. And sanctification is always defined, according to W.E. Vines, as separation unto the Lord. And so if God is love, we're being told to separate our lives to the royal law. Be separated unto a life of love. That's all you need to see this as. 
You don't need to let holiness generate these religious images about having to do every jot and tittle of the law. If you begin to love other people, you're going to fulfill the law. So this really is a verse about love. Peace cannot be achieved, whether you're talking spiritually or naturally. And holiness cannot be achieved, viewing it as separation unto a life of love. Love is the way these things are attained. And if you fail to do that, look at verse 15. And we begin to get a little insight into the enemy's strategies. Looking diligently. Looking diligently to what? What we just read in verse 14. Following peace with all men and holiness. Look diligently unto these truths. Lest any man fail of the grace of God. If you have an indeceased Bible, uh, you'll see a number by the word grace, or fail rather, and, uh, in the, you know, in the center reference column, you'll see it defined as falling from. You fall from. God doesn't withhold His unmerited favor. You fall from the grace of God until you learn how to, uh, embrace The truth of how much God loves you. That's how you live by the royal law. That's how you uh, settle conflict with all men. All men. Somebody that doesn't know the Lord. Somebody that is an ugly, miserable turkey. Like you used to be. Amen. I'm sorry. Like I used to be. Uh, Until, you know, I mean, following peace with all men is just not a... uh, an easy thing to do with all men. There's some men that are not going to be at peace with you no matter what you do. Uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But you can achieve the absence of conflict with all men in the natural arena. You're dealing with a natural man. That's as far as you can take this at that point. Removing conflict from the relationship. And then, of course, being separated uh, to the royal law of love. If you don't look diligently, the first thing that will happen is you will fall or fall out of the grace of God. And the second thing it says is lest. This is the second lest. Looking diligently, follow peace with all men in holiness, lest you fail or fall out of the grace of God. And the second lest, a root of bitterness springing up trouble you doesn't just trouble you. If bitterness becomes a fact of your life, it defiles many. So this is the process that the enemy is interested in beginning in your life. Uh, You know, this is something you can study out in your own time. Because, uh, you know, I've preached a, a fairly long series on these things in my own church. But the the truth of the matter is... That, you know, um, if you don't learn to be a lover of God and men, if you don't learn to be, have the revelation of, and you can't without a revelation of God's love for you, then a root of bitterness will occasionally spring up in you. It can only stay there to the extent that you refuse to forgive somebody. Forgiveness will kill bitterness. If you're still bitter towards somebody, and again, anybody that uh, has been in ministry, or maybe if you haven't, you know people that say, yeah, I know I'm supposed to forgive, but you don't know how badly they treated me. You don't know what they did to me. And man, there's some nightmare stories. I mean, child abuse growing up and, uh, you know, all kinds of potential negatives that uh, can happen through other unre- other people, usually unregenerate. Unfortunately, not always. But when when you fail to forgive, a root of bitterness will spring up within you, and that is perhaps the most dangerous cancer a person can experience on a spiritual plane, because it infects everything. That you might want to do with God. And I see this. I see this all the time. When the church was small enough 
few decades ago, I, I, I did all the counseling. And, you know, and I've, I've thought oftentimes, I'm not the one to be counseling. Uh, because very often my patience grows too short too quickly. But I can remember sitting across the table from married couples. And each one of them have a litany of things the other one has done that goes way back. If you don't forget that which is past, put it out of mind. It doesn't mean that, uh, you know, everything goes back to uh, go and we start over again. No, trust isn't mandated by forgiveness. When you forgive somebody, you're not saying, okay, well, I'll trust you again uh, to do this or that when before they've betrayed that trust. No, trust is built by that other person. But you're required to forgive. That means don't let it dominate your thinking in your current relationship. You cannot. That's what to forget that which is past. The word forget means to put out of mind. This wasn't intended to be a, um, an elaboration on forgiveness. But here's the pattern that we see that I want to explore in a little more depth. Uh, it begins with unresolved conflict. We're, if we're to follow after peace with all men, it means we have to become reasonably skilled in the art of conflict resolution. And it is an art. It is something that you have to school yourself in and deliberately pursue. But almost all conflict is resolvable. And the first thing that you have to do is learn to resolve conflict. And here we're speaking about a conflict of interest. We're not at war yet. Nobody's shooting anybody. It's a conflict of interest. And oftentimes you'll, in a relationship... Perceive that there's something that uh, is important to you, but the other person isn't able to receive it because they're threatened by it. They feel like it's a conflict you know, of their best interest, in a conflict with their best interest, what you want to do, and vice versa. That doesn't mean you have to have the same opinion as everybody else. We're different. We're going to have different opinions. We're going to, you know, about a lot of things. But as long as the differences can be relegated to methodology, you can resolve the conflict. And let me explain the statement for a moment. If you're in conflict with somebody, and again, I've taught a short series on this, conflict resolution. So I'm trying to squeeze all of this into, uh, you know, so we get out at least by 2 o'clock. Okay. <laughs> what are you laughing about? You know, I might be serious about that. What, do we have a conflict of interest here? What's the deal? <laughs> but when you're in conflict with somebody, your goal is to follow peace with all men, to resolve the conflict, first and foremost of all. Studies have been done on this. It is a fact that 90, I'm not real sure if it was 6 or 8, but a very large majority of all perceived conflicts of interest are rooted in misunderstanding. Yes. So in the communication process, that implies a lot of different things, which, you know, seem almost uh, too, too wide, too deep, too um, broad to embrace. But you start with things that relate to communication. The Bible says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Because when you engage your tongue before you engage your brain, it's not going to work out. One of the most basic things we give to somebody when we're trying to walk in love toward them is a listening ear. Let them have the opportunity to air their grievances without getting mad, slow to wrath. Because if you get mad, you might as well walk away. The whole deal is shot until you can approach this without anger. Anger takes you in a different direction. You know, um, the word, 
talking about communication, says that anything is corrupt which comes out of your mouth in Ephesians 4 that doesn't edify the hearer or build them up. Baseless or even if it was justified, accusation doesn't do that. So there are, there are things and ways that we learn to communicate that will not further the conflict but can't be there if it's ever going to be resolved. And conflict resolution has to be a goal. When there's somebody that you're just, man, there's, you're at loggerheads with them, you just can't seem to get on the same page, you need to go to them and you need to gain their agreement that the conflict has to be resolved. And if they're a normal person, even unregenerate or unsaved, they understand the difficulties that ongoing conflict will produce. The challenges, the pain, the hurt that unresolved conflict can produce. And certainly if you're talking to another believer now, you can take them to the Word in many different places. The conflict has to be resolved. Just let me read you... To remind you of uh, what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10 says. Paul speaking to the church at Corinth says, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. First time I read that, I said, that's not possible. But that's what he says. Of course, the word tells us that we are to be one heart, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's easy to demonstrate to another believer that conflict cannot uh, be allowed to be unresolved. You're going to have to deal with it. And of course, these things are more evident in close relationships, the difficulty in conflict resolution, than anywhere else. A lot of the times it's families that are ripped apart by the inability to resolve conflict. Well, if the other person, if they're a believer, it should be possible. But even an unbeliever brought to the uh, conclusion that, yes, it would be best if we could resolve the conflict. And most conflict is rooted in misunderstanding. So the first process, part of the process in conflict resolution is to, uh, you know, say, okay, now this involves establishing refusal parameters. Um, I don't have a, an opportunity to elaborate on a lot of this. Refusal parameters are basically things you will not transgress. And most essentially, that's the Word of God. Whether it be the written Word or what you're convinced the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart. Things that may not be in the Bible, but God has a will for you. And the Holy Spirit's job is to reveal it to you. So when it would require you, there, the other person would require you to move across a refusal parameter, you have to stop. But most of the time, you don't have to even go that far because it's rooted in misunderstanding. And, and, you know, resolving misunderstanding is fairly easy. You know, it's amazing to me how true this has been over the years. You know, having people in my office uh, that really had a bone to pick with me or with the church, there was a conflict going on. It's usually because they thought I said, they thought I believed, they thought I did, they heard this or they heard that. And so it's always advisable to find out what their definition of the perceived conflict is. Get them to tell you what they believe it's all about. And then you run it back to them. Make sure you heard it right. That's called the paraphrase. You just put it in your own words, run it back to them. And you can find out that most of the conflict is resolvable by eliminating the misunderstanding. And, you know, I forget the percentages. This wasn't to be my message today. I'm already on a rabbit trail. But 
these are things that, uh, you know, can be studied pretty easily. There's been teaching on the, this, and it's just necessary for you to come to the point where you, you realize the danger of conflict. This is where the enemy begins his strategy. Ultimately, he wants division. We can't do a whole lot by ourselves for the kingdom of God. If you're an island unto yourself, you know, you may be able to take care of some of your personal needs and wants through your faith. But as far as impacting the world for the Lord, no way. We do that together or we don't do it at all. And so, you know, you start down this path. Gain agreement that the conflict needs to be resolved. Make sure the possibility of misunderstanding is taken care of. And then when there is a perceived conflict, then you have you have your refusal parameters in place. And you be willing to give on the methodology. In ministry, you know, there have always been different opinions about how to accomplish certain things. You know, um, that's not conflict yet. I, you know, encourage ideas and opinions. This is one of the ways you enlighten yourself as to things that can be done to improve ministry, efficiency, profitability, uh, you know, increase, whatever the case may be. You need other ideas. But the key is this. If you have to hold on to your idea, that's problematic. You need to be willing to yield on any point regarding methodology. How you do it. If you're, if you're, uh, you know, if you're dealing with another Christian, most of the time, the things you want to see accomplished, they do too. They want to see Jesus have a more uh, paramount place in your community, your city. They want to see the things that God says in His Word uh, are His will. So most of the time, dealing with another uh, another believer, it's not so much the end result that you're striving together for or need to strive together for. But striving together means oftentimes you need to give or yield on the methodology. And don't do it grudgingly. Don't do it from the standpoint of, hey, I don't want to give you your way, but it's wrong and we'll see. (laughs) Doesn't get it. Be willing to yield on the methodology. Get excited about the end result that you both want to see. And you can move forward with your life. I think they, uh, you know, the surveys that I've read have said that there are only about 2%, 3% of the conflicts you'll engage in in your life uh, that are unresolvable. The other person, sometimes, I mean, I've been in the presence of people that thrive on and feed on conflict. I don't know what it is about it that they thrive on, but they do. They probably won't agree to enter into the process of conflict resolution to begin with. But there will be people occasionally where you get to the point. What is um, Romans 16? How do they phrase that exactly? Uh, so what happens when you find one of those folks? It says in Romans 16:17, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them. That doesn't mean publicly humiliate. The word mark means to mentally distinguish. To make note of. Make note of those which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. These are people that will not move down the path of conflict resolution. It's almost like they're on a demonic assignment to create... Division. Divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. And avoid them. That simply means there are going to be some people that you ultimately have to pull away from until the Lord is able to reach them through somebody else or in another way. 
Maybe that won't happen. Maybe it will. But it's out of your arena of responsibility now. You've done every can, thing you can to resolve the conflict. And you'll, you will resolve 97, 98% of the conflict you engage in if you follow that very simple pattern. Conflict often is the product of having taken offense. Somebody taking an offense. So we're talking about the enemy strategy. There are things that are offensive to you that people would say to you, about you, or a loved one, or uh, ministry matters, you know. This, it's easy to take offense. But if you don't take offense and you don't give offense, conflict will never uh, erupt anyway. And so where it comes to offense, the Bible's very specific. You're not to take it, and you're not to give it. And there are many scriptures that deal with both. You can't always do something about whether or not the person you're dealing with uh, is offensive or not. So the first challenge is to be sure you don't take offense. And if you're grounded in the truth that you're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but powers, principalities, rulers of darkness and in high places, if you know your problem is spiritual and they're just being used by the wrong spirit, then it's easier not to take offense. And it's mandatory that you don't take offense. And the other thing that helps is to think for a moment about how much God loves them. Now, you're to be living by the royal law. God loved them. So much that he sent Jesus for them. So help, you, you ask the Lord to help you see them through his eyes. And you'll begin to realize for them to have been so offensive to begin with, they must be under a horrendous level of warfare. Most usually the people that are most offensive are the most miserable. The most they're in the most pain of anybody. They need this that you have more than anybody else because they, you know, they simply don't understand the truths at this point that you do. So it's easy when you think about you're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Ask God to show you what he, how he sees this person and endeavor to see them through his eyes and you can avoid being offended. So the second part of this is not giving offense. And so the Bible, you know, says a lot about that as well. You know, I used to think that all I had to deliver was the truth. But the truth, not delivered in love, becomes a weapon. There, there are times you don't use the truth on somebody because it would only hurt more where they are right now and, you know, drive that wedge between you uh, in even further. And so truth is not, I mean, truth will set the captive free if it's delivered in love. Otherwise, uh, it can be dangerous, and you have to use it selectively and having thought it out. Uh, but, you know, not to offend other people. You know, I, I used to think it was funny to say certain things, call people bozo, you know, stuff like that. And uh, I need to repent of that <laughs> because basically that's, you know, I, some of the letters you get when you're in ministry are amazing. But they're very, they're very revealing, whether it's a letter or an email, about things perhaps you can change to be more effective in your calling. And so, you know, as somebody that has any sort of public ministry, certainly, but privately as well, you need to learn to communicate without offending. You really know. I mean, even my jokes, which are so wonderfully funny, uh, if they if they all focus on gender differences, or if I'm a man, I tend to tell more jokes about the ladies... I've got to pepper my jokes with a lot of jokes about men to keep the scales. You think I'm kidding? I told a joke one time 
and not deliberately uh, thinking that it would be hurtful to somebody. Um, I can't even repeat it. Somebody would get offended. But, uh, but you know, certainly cultural differences, uh, gender differences, you just need to be aware of how to talk without offending people. Because the Bible says in James chapter 3, verse 2, I'm not going to take time to turn there. They might put it on the screen. But basically it says, if we learn to communicate without offending in word, then we've matured to a point where we can guide the whole body. Bridle the whole body. Bridle means to guide. You can influence the direction, the whole body, the whole church. Whatever group you're dealing with, your whole family, your co-workers, you can properly influence them in a way that will be consistent with the Word and the will of God if you learn to do it without offending. I mean, they've even done corporate studies about this and thought they came up with a good idea. I remember reading a book back in the 70s uh, written by two Jewish guys, Heilman and Horstein about managing human resource and organizations. And the big revelation of the book was eliminating the threat environment in the workplace. If all you do is tell somebody they're going to get demoted, fired, never get a raise unless they meet your standards of performance. For instance, this is what the book was written to address. That was typical of the corporate hierarchy uh, in that day. <laughs> you know, you don't perform, man, you out the door. And, of course, the leadership and the bosses talk that way. And what that does is it threatens a person's job security, future, income earning potential. It, it, it affects everything. There are ways you can communicate what they need to do and bring correction to bear in their life without making them feel threatened. Jesus gives us an example of that in the seven churches. He always, with one exception, no, no, he always says what's good about them first. He says, I know your labor, I know your work, I know what you've done. And he pats them on the back a little bit. And then he says, but I have this one thing. Now, don't use this in a ridiculously manipulative sense. Don't call somebody into your office and say, I just love you, brother, but. (laughs) But when somebody is secure in their relationship with you, then you can deliver correction without it being a threat. There are all kinds of considerations we need to give to these things. Because offense given or received is the beginning of conflict. So the best way to resolve conflict is never get in it. And if you eliminate the tendency to be offended or take offense, you have cut the devil off at the pass. But if conflict does exist, because sometimes it's simply not of your doing, then remember the things that we've just talked about and make it a priority to resolve the conflict. By the way, um, I would normally throw in the matter of forgiveness here because conflict cannot exist if forgiveness is given. And so hopefully the, the parties involved are both mature enough in the, in the Lord to understand that truth. It doesn't mean you have to trust somebody that has proven themselves untrustworthy. It means you just can't think about it, what has gone past. You learn from it. There are certain things you learn about dealing with people or situations. You learn from it and you don't open that door again. But you forget about the offense and the hurt and what they did to you or didn't do to you. You've got to get beyond that. And then as you begin moving down that path and considering all of the things that I've talked about this morning, you will undermine the enemy's strategy to keep you from loving people. 
to keep you from walking together, striving together, one heart, one mind for the faith of the gospel. It's his purpose to divide. That's why don't ever fall into the trap of saying, well, they're hard to get along with. I'm just never going to deal with them anymore. No, no, don't do that. Relationally, you're probably God's channel using you to bring change to their life. Could well be. Could be the other way around. He may have some things in mind for them to bring into your life, to advance his purpose in your life or your ministry. So don't ever just blow off a relationship because it's a hard one. We are to cultivate relationships with unbelievers because we are to take the gospel to the world. Doesn't mean we fellowship with them. Fellowship with like-minded believers. Fellowship is a reference to the opening of the heart. You don't do that with an unbeliever. You don't get in that kind of tight relationship with an unbeliever. There were guys. This was a hard one for me. Uh, I flew in the military and did a couple of tours in Vietnam. I was a pilot and uh, still am a pilot, but this was in the earlier years. And, uh, you know, a lot of those guys you get real tight with. It's like, man, you're tighter with them than anybody. And uh, so when I began to understand the truths I'm sharing with you now, uh, I had a, I had to make this choice. Okay, I need to I need to figure out how to get in front of this person or that person, and and we need to get to the subject of the Lord, because I either need to get them saved if I'm going to continue in fellowship with them, or you know uh, I'm going to have to separate myself from them. And you know so. You get to a point where you have purged all of your questionable relationships that were in place before you made Jesus your Lord or uh, got serious about him. And, uh, and you eliminate a lot of that challenge or that difficulty. But you, you, know, you build relationships proactively with people in the world. You just don't make them your best buddy. You don't get to this place of fellowship with them or it will be you that changes. Remember, holiness, and our definition of holiness should be kept in mind, but holiness is not, is not contagious. Unholiness is, according to the Word of God. So if you keep uh, relationships in place with people that are unregenerate, then, uh, you know, you're opening the door to a backsliding experience for yourself. To take you in the wrong direction. But you build relationships with the world. People in the world. Because God just may want to use you. To open the door to eternal life. For them. Well you know what. It's 5 after 12. And uh, I know y'all normally end at 12. And since I'm a pastor. And since there's playoff games this afternoon. <laughs> I'm going to give it back to Brother Keith. Thank you so much. Amen. That's, that was great, Brother Mike. Thank you, sir. Praise God. Would you stand up, please? Wasn't that a great word? My, my. You talk about some nuggets now. I, th- I thought that was just wonderful, Brother Mike. That was just, mm. Hallelujah. Let's close our eyes and focus on the Lord, Father.